Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Ah, yes, indeed. Welcome back. Or welcome to What on Earth, the monthly business discussion on Australia's transition to net zero and post-carbon economy and what that all means for businesses in Australia. Hello, my name is James Scotland, and I'm the General Manager of Supply Chain Resilience for the Australian Industry Group. It's my pleasure to host this monthly discussion with my two learned colleagues. Firstly, Tennant Reid, the Head of National Policy for Energy and Environment for the Australian Industry Group, and Paul Hodson, the CEO of Scaling Green Hydrogen Cooperative Research Centre. The three of us discuss the issues of the day each month, <laughs> but today is a bit different. Two episodes ago, it was just Tennant and me as Paul was on a well-earned break in Europe. And today, it's just Paul and me as Tennant is in China at a high-level dialogue meeting between China and Australia. So as I say, Paul, it's just you and me. You up to the challenge? Oh, absolutely, James. Uh, always good to chat. And, um, you know, uh, Tennant can review and critique our podcast when he gets back. <laughs> and be his usual brutal self, but erudite as well. Well, Tennant's our policy guy, although you've done a bit of work in policy, but uh, he, he mainly is our policy guy and you're our economic development guy. So let's talk a bit about economic development today, seeing as we're not <laughs> encumbered by the policy guys. Um, one other thing about the transitioning economy globally was that there was this idea that once we move away from, say, fossil fuel, for example, we wouldn't be dependent on where the fossil fuel is. The renewable energy would be able to be produced anywhere in the world. So countries might become self-sufficient. I mention this because Australia's got some great natural resources for this type of renewable energy. And I know that you've just been up in the Pilbara. I was wondering if you can give me an update. What's it like? Is, is, are we starting to be self-sufficient? Can we become self-sufficient? Or is it going to be a global trading economy? Or a bit of both? Yeah, look, it's a really good question, James. Um, you know, existing, there's always quite a lot of uh, inertia and protection of existing uh, systems and infrastructure and business models um, and uh, trade routes and the like. Um, in, you know, in, in theory, I guess we can be, uh, that energy independence can be spread far and wide if solar and wind and biomass and other things are a much more plentiful supply and much more easy, evenly distributed across the world, then maybe smaller energy generation and storage and utilization can occur rather than very large centralized capital intensive um, with only a small players, um, a few small players, sorry, a few big players can, uh, can be part of that. Um, but I don't, I, I don't really know. I think there's still a, we're still watching to see how it's going to play out um, and whether capital intensive large uh, production units and the like are going to be a more efficient way of doing it or not. Um, so being able to do something, uh, you know, we can do this, but should we do it, I think is the big question of the energy transition. Uh, there are lots of things we can do, uh, but what we will end up doing will be a little bit more complicated than that. Um, it's probably not a great answer, James. Um, uh, it sounds like I'm kind of straddling a fence. No, but that's, um, and perhaps I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, predicting the future is fraught. <laughs> um, we have 
a lot of sun. We have a, uh, a lot of land. We have a lot of, um, of wind and we have a fair bit of water or we have a bit of water. And that's the same as the people who currently produce the oil that fuels the world. So I would imagine it makes sense that we could possibly be in direct competition. You know, the natural resources, again, are going to be, what's that, uh, what, what defines a competition? Do, do you think that's right? In other words, we're going to be uh, competing with uh, North Africa, for example. Well, there will be there will be countries that like well there'll be there's countries like Australia where we've got significant fossil fuel um, reserves, um, particularly gas, um, particularly coal, and we've got uh, solar and wind both onshore and offshore, um, and we've got other you know renewable energies, for example, biofuels and biomass. Um, and then there's other countries that have had fossil fuels but potentially don't have the access to renewables. Um, and there'll be some that didn't have access to fossil fuels but have huge amounts of solar, for example. Um, so there is going to be a, 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 some disruption, I guess, in where the energy is supplied from and where the energy is produced from um, and where that demand is. Um, but for Australia, because we theoretically could move from a fossil fuel export economy to a renewable fuel and energy uh, because we've got advantages in both. Uh, in some ways, we want to keep those same trading relationships and mm. build on them mm. as well. Um, but it does mean we may end up with uh, different competitors in the global marketplace. Oh, well, I think, that, I think there's going to be different competitors, isn't there? Because different companies are at further advanced at trying to grab the opportunities that, that exist. Uh, whereas other countries are still very much uh, um, in the, um, the the fossil fuel trading uh, trading scheme. What's the pool like? You were just yeah. there. Um, tell me about what's happening up there. Is it going well? Are we 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 on track to become an energy player again? In a, a renewable energy player. It's, it's fascinating. Um, my first trip to the Pilbara, um, I didn't get right across the Pilbara. I uh, uh, concentrated around Karratha and I went out to Burrup Peninsula uh, where Dampier ports and some of the, uh, the industrial, for example, ammonia production um, and went out to look at some of the, the port infrastructure. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing region, um, uh, amazing cultural, natural uh, history. Um, but uh, I think they get something like 350 or 355 days of sunshine a day. Um, uh, the iron ore that goes out of there is uh, amazing. I didn't get up to Port Hedland, but it's something like 900 million tonnes a year of iron ore um, leaves the region. It's um, unbelievable, isn't it? Like staggering. Yeah. Um, and the city of Karratha uh, are very proud to say that in 2021, um, sixty percent of Australia's exports by value left the Pilbara. Hmm. So sixty percent of our exports left the Pilbara um, is a huge figure. It's back down to about thirty percent um, because obviously 2020, 2021 was a strange year uh, with the pandemic. But uh, uh, but yeah, still thirty percent of Australia's exports. Yeah, is that is that all iron ore? Is is that all iron ore that that we're talking about him? No, I think the biggest ones are really iron ore and LNG. Oh, yeah, of course, LNG. Yeah, sorry. But it's not, it's not coal, is it? No. We export lithium, though. We export salt. Uh, we export ammonia. Um, there's a whole range of things that we export out of that. But the, the two big ones are iron ore and LNG. Um, 
A um, couple of things. One, one, I was really interested to see a lack of electricity transmission infrastructure. So generally, the project proponents look after their own energy. Um, a lot of things I would imagine up there are fueled currently by LNG because that's the, been the predominant energy source up there. But looking at uh, the growth of renewables, um, initially it looks like a lot's going to happen at the project by project site. Um, I was interested to see just this week that uh, the uh, WA government and the, the Australian government have agreed on uh, $3 billion out of the Rewiring the Nation uh, fund uh, to go through the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to WA, including to the Pilbara. So uh, that may start to accelerate some of the renewable generation and utilisation investments in the Pilbara if there's an investment in some electricity infrastructure uh, transmission infrastructure in particular to link up uh, the generation with the uh, uh, with the need. Just picking on one thing before we, we go back to that, uh, there was a report a while ago that one of the big mines in in central or north WA uh, had for years imported every day uh, uh, one or two container loads of diesel fuel to drive their to drive their um, you know their, their they're mine, uh, mine trucks. Um, so, you know, think about that. We're bringing fuel in from uh, Saudi Arabia through Singapore down to Perth, then trucking it up to this mine. And then, you know, obviously someone said, why don't we just reuse fuels, uh, uh, vehicles that use renewable energy? And they stopped importing one to two, 20,000 container trucks every day. It's a staggering change in your operating model, isn't it? A staggering change. And that's just in the fuel of the, of the trucks. That, that, that's right. And there is still diesel imported into the Pilbara region, um, but probably not as much now because of that particular uh, situation. Um, but there's a lot of fuel that goes into, for example, there's 5,000 iron ore shipments that leave the Pilbara each year bound for East Asia. Uh, 5,000 iron ore shipments. And uh, there is a, uh, a Global Maritime uh, Forum consortium looking at green ammonia fueling those ships. Now, the amount of green ammonia would be staggering. Um, and there's an opportunity to, to uh, produce that in Australia, um, using green hydrogen into green ammonia, uh, potentially even bunkering that fuel um, in the Pilbara so that the refueling can happen there. Or that opportunity may be lost to Australia and uh, that green ammonia comes from elsewhere um, and is bunkered as it is currently, uh, the fuels in, in Singapore. Um, so we, uh, so we, we've got great a lot of advantages, James. But we, uh, we, we, we need to fight for that opportunity. We need to sharpen our pencil. We need to collaborate. We need to innovate. We need to bring down the cost, um, and we need to show that we want to be part of a competitive global market. Um, it won't just come to us uh, because the sun's shining. The people who listen to this in uh, in WA will shake their their fist at us for saying this, but uh, over here on the east. Uh, we, I think there's a very limited knowledge of how big the operations in the Pilbara are, not just in terms of iron ore and 60% of exports and 5,000 ships, et cetera, but also just in the, the size of the, the solar farms out there, the, 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 the ammonia production facilities being, being made. Did you get a chance to physically see any of those monster operations or did you fly over them or something? Or did you get a feel for it anyway, I guess? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I flew over it, but I wasn't sitting at the window, so I didn't really get to see uh, you know, without. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but I I did get to see you know uh, some of the port facilities and the like, and it is. I mean, it's a. Uh, uh, I have heard it referred to as the global mining industry Silicon Valley as well. The amount of technology at play, um, and that often gets. Uh, 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 missed a little bit when people talk about how advanced the Australian economy is. They say, well, yeah, but you just ship out, you know, raw materials. Well, the way we mine and, and process and ship out raw materials is uh, underpinned by a lot of technology um, and a lot of know-how and a lot of very clever um, remote operations, automation. Uh, you know, we've got autonomous trucks, for example. Uh, we've got, you know, some very clever things happening with operating costs and with fuels and the like. So um, it, is, it is a big area. Um, I think there's a sense that more money probably could be spent up there um, of the revenue that comes into Australia. Um, and I think there's also an opportunity to build much more social and economic opportunity for the region and for Australia um, in that region and including with uh, the, the Aboriginal people uh, you know, the First Nations of, of that region as well. You know, I'd love to see much more co-ownership of a lot of these projects um, with First Nations people. Um, and hopefully we mature in the way we do big projects and big investments that we, uh, 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 there's a much more of a shared value approach, I suspect, to, to what, we, what we can do. And that, that's really the economic development practitioner in me as well, is kind of how do we embed how do we create sticky economic and social opportunities for Australia from very, very big things that we might want to do for the rest of the world? Which leads naturally to the question of, did you leave the area um, inspired or concerned or uh, undecided as to how, how it's traveling? Um, inspired, I think, more than anything. Um, uh, it's, a, an, it's a region with tremendous opportunity. It's, it's a, a real hub for how we might do global decarbonisation. Um, it's a fantastic opportunity for Australia. And if we, can get, if we can get the Pilbara right, if we can get the way we transition the industries there, if we, if we create green iron or if we create green steel potentially, um, if we do large solar farms and we build community around them, um, if we build manufacturing, um, if we uh, do co-investments and co-sharing of benefits to actually uh, uh, spread uh, the value to local communities and create amenity, um, I, think, I think it's a, a fantastic almost theme park for global decarbonisation, uh, given uh, what is possible up there. It's a, uh, it's a big area. It's a dry area. It's got some very well-trained people. It's got some great advantages uh, and it's very stable. In fact, it sort of describes Australia as a whole. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of a microcosm of, of what we do. It suggests that we would be good at doing that. Um, and yet it's not particularly well known what happens up there. Do they need to, to talk about it a bit more? They being the locals. Yeah, I would say that they probably... Uh do feel that they talk about it a lot, but it's a long way from the, and you know what it's like, James, people in Perth go, 
you know, the East Coast, and I've, I've worked with organizations, I've worked for an organization based in Perth, and I have huge sympathy for people in WA that, particularly when daylight savings on, they're three hours behind uh, Melbourne, Sydney, and Canberra. Um, and the national decisions and agenda is often racing before they're having breakfast. Um, and so, you know, you shrug your shoulder, you shrug your shoulders and you, you get on with it. And I think WA's got that kind of uh, get on with it kind of approach, to be honest. Um, I mean, it takes me from Brisbane, it was a five and a half hour flight to Perth. It was another two hours north to Caratha. Um, it's a whole day uh, flying to get there. Um, so I would say that they, they do say that they are, uh, they are trying to promote the region and to talk about the challenges, but it's, well, I'd probably um, be sympathetic to views that they feel that maybe they're not being listened to as much as they could be. It's the uh, same time zone as Singapore, and it's about the same flying time as Singapore from, from, from Brisbane, and, um, and Singapore is a serious trading uh, port, so... Uh, they have a right to say you should be listening to us. <laughs> we're, we're not the one out of time zones. You guys are the one with the weird time zone. So I was going to say uh, they are they are bringing containers into uh, Karatha um, uh, on their way down to Fremantle now from Singapore. So that's cutting mm. some of the mm. supply chain costs. Hey, before we move on, I just had a thought. You said that they make ammonia there, so it's already got a hard, a big hydrogen industry in the region. Is is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah, so Yarra, um, I visited Yarra, um, and uh, they, they, you know, they're a very large ammonia uh, producer in, um, uh, in Karatha. And uh, yeah, so ammonia is already being produced there. So again, we're already doing things there. Um, it's exported, is it? Yes. The, the yeah. ammonia. Yeah. Yeah, so I was going to say we're already an exporter of energy and, uh, and chemicals. Um, so moving to green energy and green chemicals, uh, given... Given the the theoretical access to renewables that we've got, um, should be something that we can do. Um, but uh, there's a lot of ifs, buts, maybe's, a lot of investment, a lot of collaboration, uh, a lot of innovation to make that happen. We've talked about this on the on the podcast before about whether or not we should be making renewable energy for export or whether or not for for local consumption. Obviously, we've got to make some for local consumption but do you think the Pilbara and, and Northern Territory are going to be the export sort of areas and the Tasmanias and the you know Queenslander will be fueling Australia is it going to be as clearly delineated as that or will it be we'll see who buys the uptake yeah I don't think it's going to be as clear as that but I mean you know the north of Australia well James um, it mm, does it mm. you know for my all of my career I have been perplexed that a lot of our development is still in the south of the country when our markets are north. Um, yeah, so, yeah. you know, you talked about Karatha to Singapore or Darwin to Singapore. Um, it's, a, a lot, it's a lot closer than it is from Melbourne or Brisbane or Sydney or, or somewhere else, right? So, so we, we've got a lot of the resources up there. I think that the challenge has always been the investment in the infrastructure, the workforce, and how you build up the social amenity um, and how you potentially co-invest and co-share with uh, First Nations people. Um, but it, it can be done. I think we could invest a lot more in Northern Australia um, as well. And I think we need to have enough renewable energy for our own needs, as well as being able to export it. I, think, I don't think it's an either or. I think we should be able to do both. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we used to say in, uh, in, in Darwin that Darwin was the closest Asian city to Australia <laughs> because we felt closer to Asia than we felt to Australia. Um, and it's actually a long way from Australia, if you, apart yeah. from being on the same land. It's a, it's a long way from the rest of Australia. Next week, uh, when this comes out, the week that it comes out, you and I will have been at the uh, hydrogen, the second annual Hydrogen Connect Summit in Brisbane, which is part of the cluster networks. Now, I wanted to ask you about that because you were instrumental in setting up the clusters, seeing as we talk about the transition a lot. Can I just sort of give me your thoughts? Uh, let's just talk for a minute about why clusters are important and do you think they're part of the transition going forward. That's a Dorothy Dixer, obviously, because you do. But uh, let's just talk about clusters and then we'll talk about the, the, the summit. Yeah. Um, look, I think clusters are fundamental. It's, uh, it's disappointing, I think, that the clusters approach to economic development really hasn't taken hold in Australia. I think, I think there's something like 3,000 different clusters across uh, Europe. I was talking to uh, someone from uh, Denmark uh, a couple of days ago. And clusters is just the way they operate, right? It's just built in collaboration, um, mm. but it's about mm. advanced mm. manufacturing and services and how you work together to capture that, that value. Um, it's a co coopetition perhaps approach. Um, and what I think clusters would bring to Australia is an ability to build local supply chains, to build manufacturing and services um, off the back of production and construction projects. Uh, that do occur, but uh, and and the National Hydrogen Technology Cluster Network was looking at doing that in hydrogen. So how would you do that in in hydrogen? And there's a couple of reasons I think why you do that in in something like hydrogen. Uh, one is that um, have getting the attention of manufacturers overseas to supply to the Australian market is going to be tough because uh, hydrogen activity is happening globally. And therefore, we do want to have a sovereign manufacturing capability to be able to build our own industry and not be doing that at the mercy of uh, the rest of the world. Hydrogen equipment as well in the process requires uh, quite regular servicing and refurbishment. So you can't just you know, float in electrolyzers from overseas, uh, plug them in yeah. and just let them operate. You, know, you need a workforce, mm -hmm. you need a local refurbishment. Uh, you might need local componentry and the like. Um, plus, a lot of this equipment is going to require the critical minerals that Australia has got so uh, plentifully available anyway. Um, so uh, it makes strategic sense for manufacturers to be operating in this market because it'll be a large market. Hopefully, it's got uh, access to abundant renewable energy so that you can do green manufacturing. Um, it's got access to the critical minerals. Um, and uh, you might be able to provide some of the componentry, some of the critical minerals, some of the workforce skills into some of your um, uh, global operations as well. So what's happened after the pandemic is because of the precariousness of global supply chains, you don't want single point uh, failure. Uh, what you want is to have uh, a global strategy and Australia is a great place to be manufacturing uh, as part of your global uh, operations. In that answer, you, you, you sort of mentioned this refurbishment of, of hydrogen plants when they're built. Uh, do we have the skilled workforce for that? I know years ago I asked the question of one of the big engineering companies whether or not it was a transferable skill from LNG to hydrogen, and they said, we don't know, we're trying to work it out. 
Have we had any progress on that? Have, do we need to build an industry or is it, is it ready-made? Yeah, I reckon there's a lot of transferable skills, um, and particularly from the mining uh, equipment technology and services sector. Um, uh, there's a lot of people that understand uh, the safety issues around fabrication, around high-pressure vessels, um, around whether it's pipelines. Uh, there's people from the electricity sector that understand uh, voltage and they understand storage. Uh, there's people in materials. Uh, there's people in the water sector that understands, you know, water is a, 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 a very high skill in Australia. Um, as a dry continent, uh, we've got some of the best water research and water technology specialists globally. And, and what it requires, I think, is a little bit of upskilling across that. So for people that might work in hydrogen, uh, they might, you might have some people who have a gas background who are picking up some water or some electricity skills. You might have people from the electricity sector uh, picking up gas or water skills and vice versa. Um, but the quicker we can help those companies uh, transfer their capability and the individuals transfer their capability, I think the better off we'll be. Um, but but I, uh, yeah, I think there should be plentiful jobs um, if we get this right. And I think we've, uh, we've got most of the skills already. Sounds like there might be some manufacturing opportunities in the sustainment of the of the industry of the replacement parts and um, just keeping the whole thing trundling along for twenty or thirty years. Absolutely, yeah, that's pretty exciting. Um, oh well, let's move on. The, the next issue I wanted to talk to you about is the the cost of the transition. Um, there's some interesting stuff came out. There's a report from Bloomberg who quoted a report from the International Monetary Fund who said that last year, last calendar year, $1.1 trillion was spent on the transition. $1.1 trillion was spent on transitioning to the post-carbon fossil fuel world. But it also said that the IMF calculated uh, $1.3 trillion uh, in undercharging for fossil fuels. In other words, what they're saying is that you know, we're worldwide we've said, hey, we can't afford that to live our lives. We paid that much for for the real cost of fossil fuels, so you need to subsidize it. And there's one point three trillion of it spent on subsidizing fossil fuels and only one trillion only one trillion, as you know, I suppose saying it, isn't it? Only one trillion on the transition. This is going to be a problem for a while, isn't it? I mean, this is a part of the Ukraine issue, obviously, but uh, we've got to fund the current operation and try and still fund the change. Are we going to see clashes with that or more clashes? Or how does your economic development brain see that? Acknowledging neither of us are um, accountants or economists. Well, I think it's, um, you know, we've we've said before on this podcast that the energy transition is messy. You know, if you could if you could close down the energy system, global energy system, it's we're going to be out for lunch for two years, you know, uh, and we're going to rebuild it. Um, it would be a lot more efficient to do it right, but you can't do it. Uh, you want to keep the proverbial lights on. You've got to keep trucks rolling. You've got to keep planes and ships moving. Um, we're we're trying to fix this as it's going along, and these this is an energy system that's been in development for you know the best part of a hundred years, um, and and possibly even longer in some aspects. And we're trying to you know turn it on its head, you know completely completely change it within the space of a few decades. But it does become difficult if it is, oh, hang on, we can't do that yet. 
We need to keep this coal-fired power station running. Uh, we actually need more oil. We need more gas. We need to explore for more because you know there's energy security, because the world needs more energy. We need to keep doing this. Um, um, it is a conundrum, James. I, I, you know, how, at what point do you go, okay, uh, you know, enough's enough. We actually need to overinvest um, in, in the new to get us there quicker as opposed to sort of bumping along, uh, spending significant amounts of money, as you've mentioned, but also making sure that people have access to energy. Um, I don't know if we've really figured that one out. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the observers of this report suggested that we need to start naming it. You know, like uh, the the current fuel system is not a great fuel system. That's not great. It's getting scarce. It's now in the most remote parts of the earth. It costs a fortune to extract it. Costs a fortune to transport it. And then when we get it, we got to subsidise it because it's not it's not good enough. The current system is not great. In fact, it's probably broken. Uh, a further part of uh, the report said that. If you actually started doing like for like, there is $5 trillion of implicit subsidies. That is $5 billion that is not taking on the triple bottom line, if you like. It's not it's saying that there is a cost to using fuel, a uh, fossil fuel. It has an impact on the economy. It has a whole bunch of impacts. So if you fully cost it, we're subsidizing it to a further $5 trillion, um, a total of $7.3 trillion every year in subsidising the fossil fuel industry. So this is from the IMF um, and Bloomberg. I don't think it's you know completely just rat bag radicals. They're just sort of trying to do an analysis and saying, what, what does it look like? The challenge seems to be we need to start talking about the, the true cost of fuel for our, for our living. Do you think that uh, – does that resonate with you or does that sound like, nah, this is just making up numbers? No, look, it, it, it does resonate, but I think it's like anything. If you've got a very complex system of – uh, profit and loss and costs and uh, expenses um, and some places are profiting or some organizations or even units of a business are banking something as revenue and profit but but the costs are being uh, uh, born somewhere else then the system's not going to change it's only where the costs actually affect the profits and the revenue um, and in some yeah. ways that kind of reallocation in the system is you know, generally seen as the, the role of government uh, to actually provide incentives, yeah, right. you know, to, to start charging a carbon price, for example, uh, you know, to, to create standards that need to be complied with and other things to actually incentivize um, people to shift. Um, but there's probably not mm, enough mm. of that going on to actually reallocate that. So, uh, even within government, you might have areas of government that are uh, receiving revenue for coal royalties, for example, um, but the cost yeah. borne by you know, uh, increased weather events or something, uh, no one's really looking at that and going, well, hang about, we're, we're, we're spending more on, on insurance claims and rebuilding of infrastructure than we are on coal revenues um, because they're being banked in different accounting parts of, of a department, for example. Um, mm, so, mm. Uh, so I think there's always a challenge around that. <laughs> As we speak, the uh, the United States can't decide if it's on fire or if it's being flooded, you know, and you know, knocked over by cyclones. There's there's massive um, weather events happening in the United States, and yet uh, um, they would probably parts of it have been just as guilty as others of n not recognizing the impact of climate change. I guess the conversation will become clearer. And more specific as we get forced to face it 
It's an interesting question. I see Andrew Forrest has announced that Fortescue is not going to subsidise uh, Fortescue future future enterprises, as it's called, um, with R&D. There was, there was initially a plan that it would make uh, investments in uh, future fuels based on uh, <clears throat> the support of 10% R&D from its, from its uh, iron ore operations. But, he's, but the board is now saying, no, no, we're going to make them stand alone. Do you think that'll slow things down or do you think that's the right way to go, to make, a, make them stand on their own way? This, the argument is if you're going to move into the future, we really need to sort of put our subsidies there. Whereas they now seem to be saying, no, let's, let's just take it on, on normal accounting processes. Yeah, look, I can understand that. And look, uh, Fortescue is a public company. Um, and so it does have, and its board has, a uh, responsibility to its shareholders uh, for value. Um, but it is difficult in some ways because iron ore is a very established market. Um, it's a very established market. Um, it might be difficult for something which is much more in the developmental stages like green hydrogen to compete on a raw business case basis against a new iron ore project, for example, if there's demand for iron ore, um, if, uh, if there's a, a stable price, the business case um, is going to be a lot easier than doing one for green hydrogen to make it stack up. Um, and I think there has to be a recognition that something like green hydrogen, um, you, no one's going to make money on it next month next year, uh, maybe even within three years. Um, but you could probably make an iron, new iron ore project or extension of an iron ore project. Uh, uh, you could probably see where the revenue is going to come. You could probably organize the profit, um, uh, work out what the internal rate of return is and do that. Um, I don't know if green hydrogen can really play on that, that same level playing field at the moment. Um, and that needs to be recognized by everyone in the industry, including government, uh, that uh, that this this needs a lot of pump priming uh, to be able to get it to the point where uh, where it's going to stack up on a on a on a pure business case uh, against other forms of fuels that potentially don't even have a penalty or a, a cost burden put on them for some of those externalities you talked about, including emissions. So if we're not if uh, you know if it's if it's going up against uh, if green ammonia is going up against ammonia from steam methane reformation, um, if uh, green hydrogen is going up against diesel, uh, just on a pure cost and price basis, um, given that they've got uh, you know decades of experience in infrastructure and uh, refueling and distribution and everything that's been worked down to an absolute focused level of how these things work. Um, we're not going to get there. We're not going to. We're not going to be able to make that leap. So it'll be interesting to see how it works out for Fortescue. Um, I suspect they're still going to commit to do some projects in the green hydrogen space. Um, but it it uh, it is more in your R and D budget. I would have thought at this point rather than in your commercial budget. Yeah, I think the CEO of or senior member of the uh, the Future Fuels said that it's not mining. You know what we're doing uh, with hydrogen is not. Uh, is not the same as iron ore mining or iron ore processing. It's a different industry. Look at it at different numbers. Look at it in a different way. Absolutely, uh, which is exactly what uh, what you have just said. All right. The final uh, thing that's happening at the moment is the Australia has released its first national electric vehicle strategy. 
uh, recognizing that uh, in order to have an uh, recognizing two things. Firstly, that ten percent of all greenhouse gas is created by cars or by that sort of transport, and that uh, if we're going to achieve our targets, the cars is one way of doing it. And recognizing that the uh, the the non-internal combustion engine uh, part of our vehicle fleet nationally is very small. We need to have infrastructure. We need to have the vehicles available, um, and we need to um, to have a, a strategy in place about fuel efficiency and things like that. Interesting thing about the electric vehicles is that there's no tail, no no tailpipe. You know, there's no exhaust from it. <laughs> it's a it's a totally different approach to to the world. Do you think it's uh, the? Are we on the right track with the? The electric vehicle strategy, have you had a chance to, to get your head around it? Uh, I know it's in it's the development stage, it's not fully uh, fully there, but what's your, th- what's your initial thoughts? Um, I haven't, look, I haven't got my head around it, but I mean, uh, the electric vehicles, I mean, if we look at transport, I think it was responsible for about 18% of emissions, Australia's emissions each year. Um, we now- percent of it comes from- Domestic vehicles or from comes from cars. I think ten percent comes from cars. Yeah, so and the rest is from trucks and whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a, and an electric vehicle strategy when we now don't have a car manufacturing industry um, is a different as a different thing altogether. Um, uh, because at one stage, you know, we did have a car industry and things like emissions standards and the like probably uh, were seen as being something that might be born locally. Uh, but now, given that we're importing pretty much all our electric vehicle, all our cars, uh, internal combustion engine, as well as uh, uh, hybrids and electric vehicles, it's um, uh, potentially wonder why we don't actually just uh, in, uh, put a higher emission standard on and maybe uh, even peg ourselves to the European standards um, around electric vehicles. But we... Yeah. It, it is part of, there is part of the feedback, by the way, there is part of the feedback to the initial of strategies for people to provide details of what the emission standards should be. Um, uh, I think that runs for another 18 months or something rather. So, yeah, I think they're still trying to figure out what that should be. Should we go with America? Uh, should we go with the Europe standard? Yeah. Well, seeing we import them, um, uh, putting the standards on, on the imports of uh, vehicles might be, uh, uh, might, might be a, a clever way of doing it. Remember that we, we import pretty much all our fuels anyway um, and they're high emission. So we actually have poor fuel security, or generally poor fuel security anyway. So if we, uh, if we can move to EVs, uh, we can reduce our own domestic emissions, um, which will be fantastic. Um, we uh, can also uh, create better uh, energy security for ourselves uh, as well, because that EV, mm. those EVs will be uh, powered up by electricity, uh, probably over time from more solar and wind. Yeah, right. And, and yeah, I mean, you're 100% right. We import all of our fuel. So how exposed does that leave us? If we can find a better way of doing it, let's do it. Um, one of the issues, of course, is um, is the infrastructure and that we've got to wait for the infrastructure to get built, you know, charges along the way and all the things that make it possible to operate a fleet, uh, a national fleet in a big country. Oh, absolutely. And we, but we do make electric vehicle charging here, right? We've got some of the best Electric yeah, vehicle yeah. charging technology uh, being manufactured in Australia. Uh, we've got the critical minerals. We've got the renewable energy to to fuel them up, um, and uh, we've we've also got a lot of the materials that go into a car. Um, you know, from the copper to the to the iron ore for the steel, um, for a lot of rare earths and critical minerals. You know, we 
um, in some ways we could potentially, uh, you know, have electric vehicle manufacturing or at least assembly here. Um, and maybe that would be one of the uh, ways for us to accelerate uh, EVs into the Australian market as well. But they are starting to come thick and fast now. If you look at uh, the sales of cars um, each month by month, you can see EVs taking a larger and larger chunk. Um, and it's basically Tesla um, and then a range of uh, Chinese uh, manufacturers such as uh, BYD um, are, are, are really leading the charge. Yeah, and we started off by saying that the renewable fuel of the future might not be controlled by four or five big, you know, multinational companies like they are at the moment, like fuel is at the moment. And it's more than possible that the cars of the future will not be big brands. They'll just be, you know, small brands, you know, like like B, you know, might just be little, you know, boutique car manufacturers, electric vehicle manufacturers, because there's a whole lot less simpler to make a, uh, an electric vehicle than it is to make an internal combustion engine. Yeah. Um, I suspect, I, look, I suspect what will happen is that it'll aggregate over time um, and you'll end up with large companies again. Um, and it may be the existing uh, car producers that actually, you know, buy up the brands um, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe it'll just be all Apple and Samsung, who knows. Um, <laughs> but it will be, it will aggregate because that's the way that markets work, isn't it? You know, the... the and just uh, economies of scale kick in. Yep. An interesting chat, Paul. I mean, I think we've identified the fact that uh, there's some some really exciting parts uh, to this. There's a lot of big challenges, but uh, still lumpy. We'll talk some more next next month, I guess, uh, and find out what's happening in uh, in the in the world. Uh, what's, what have you got coming up? We're going to Brisbane next week, the two of us, uh, to go to the Hydrogen Connect Summit. What's that, what's that about? Um, so I've actually got two next week. The Smart Energy Council's got their Smart Energy Queensland event on Tuesday, um, and then Hydrogen Connect Summit on Wednesday, Thursday. I'm on a panel on Tuesday talking about hydrogen, um, and I'm uh, uh, moderating a panel on Thursday, uh, obviously talking about hydrogen because that's a hydrogen-specific event. Um, and uh, I know you're speaking too, James, and it'll be it'll be good. Um, uh, I'm always looking at these conferences to what's, where's the progress, uh, where are the people talking about actions, where are the people being vulnerable and talking about the learnings and the challenges they have. Um, so that's, they'll be the things I'll be looking for over the, ne- over the next week is where are people willing to say, you know what, this is really tough. I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me? Um, or actually, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're doing something. We're not just talking about it. Um, uh, so... Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it's going to be a really good week. Um, the, it was a fantastic event last year, the Hydrogen Connect Summit. Um, some great international speakers as well, um, and a real camaraderie, I think, across the industry as people move to delivery. There's a sense that we have to work together, um, and so people are quite open and collaborative, and that seems to be happening more and more, uh, and less about the PR spin and the marketing and the hype and the hype of it, and much more the sober reality of how do we deliver on these targets. Yeah, and the complexity involved. I'll be speaking on the supply chain challenges and restrictions, and so we'll talk about the complexities of these things as well as the opportunities and uh, the reality. I think this has been a good chat. We've, we've, we've really uh, had a chance to talk about the, the pool bro. We've had a chance to talk about the numbers, and then we've had a chance to talk about the, the various industries and the impacts. Um, I've enjoyed it. Let's talk again in a month. Have a good month, Paul. Thanks, James. I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about next month. And look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs> it always is. And, um, and by then, maybe 
uh, tennis back from China. We'll see how we go. Have a good month. Fantastic. You too. Thanks, James. <laughs>